As we start, I, I want to I wanna start with this. I'm, today I'm really tired, actually, and part of that is because on Friday, Kanye and I, um, if you didn't know, we right now work at the uh, same school, middle school, and we decided to go to grad night at Chaperones because you don't need to be with the kids. So we thought, you know what, this is a great way where we could go to Magic Mountain for free. It's gonna, we're going to have a date night. It was a great idea in my mind. But fast forward to like three hours into the night, my head was hurting so much from the rides. I just sat there like I was dying. And in fact, my headache didn't go away the entire day yesterday. And so even now, I feel it a little bit. But my, I have this migraine that's just ongoing since Friday because of, I guess I can't handle the rides anymore. Anyone get headaches from those rides? I used to not either when I was your age. And then I realized, dude, I'm getting old. You know, because that's what my mom used to do, you know, going to Six Flags. She would just lie down and like, she's like, oh, my head hurts. I'm like, oh my, it's not that bad. But now I feel her pain. Um, but because of that and um, other things, I've been reminded that this year, I'm turning 30. I'm turning 30 this year. Yeah, 3-0, I know. And I just remember growing up, 30 was that age, in my mind, when you start your ajashihood. You know, it's the decade when you are really an ajashi. 20s, you're a young adult, but starting 30, you have that ajashi feel, right? I already am because I have two kids, but 3-0 just means I'm, I'm old now. And because of that, I've been actually reflecting a lot. And one of the things that kept coming up as I was reflecting about my 20s was this, that God, that he is sovereign. Amen to that? Amen. Yeah, he is sovereign. He is in control. He is guiding me. And as I thought about my 20s, again, yes, I had ups and downs, but God's sovereignty meant, number one, that he comforts me. In my times of failure, fatigue, and fears, God was there, and he said, you know what, Isaac, it's going to be okay. My sovereignty means that I am in control, and that was comforting to me. But on the other hand, God's sovereignty also meant discipline for me. In my times of pride, rebellion, and sinning, God came into my life with a strong hand and said, because you are my son, I will discipline you. And I think um, a lot of us know this already, but before we get there, today's sermon title is When God's Discipline Hurts. Can anyone relate to that? Like, if you do, can you just give me a nod? Like, when you've been disciplined by your parents or just someone, it's not, it's not fun. Micah hates memet time, right? We don't even have to do it. It's like memet, he's like, no, right? You know, discipline, it hurts, it hurts. And um, as we begin, I want to make sure we understand this. That God's sovereign hand, it doesn't just comfort us, but it also disciplines us. If he is truly our loving Heavenly Father and in control and he is mighty, yes, that means that he will comfort us out of love. But it also means out of love, he will discipline us. In Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 7, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he, not hates, loves. In verse 7, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is what? Treating you as sons, as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Out of all the kids at ANC Micah's age, I'm only going to discipline one, Micah. Why? Because he's my son. If Abby started acting up, right? Yes, I would talk to her, but I would ultimately say, you know what, Jason? It's your job. <laughs> it's not my job. 
I'm gonna tell, hey, Jason, this is what happened. Okay, go, right? Likewise, if it's really Micah, when he acts up, right, I'm gonna discipline him out of love because I'm his dad. And so by show of hands, who gets that? Because then I can move on. If not, I'm gonna talk about this for 10 more minutes. All right, some of you in the back don't get it. Okay, we discipline out of love. Some of you are like, no, that's not love, right? You just remember pain? No, no, okay. I think um, if we really think about it, we do know that love includes discipline. And as we read Jeremiah 27, we're going to see this hand of discipline from God. But before we read, um, I want us to think about these two questions and have these questions in mind. Question one is, do you want God to discipline you even if it hurts? Really think about it. If our God is our Heavenly Father, it means that He will discipline us. We saw that in Hebrews 12, but do you want God to discipline you even if you know that it's going to hurt? And the second question is, how will you respond when God does discipline you? Because it is true, whether we like it or not, if we're truly sons and daughters of God, He will discipline us. And so when He does, how will you respond to that? With that in mind, let's just pray one more time and then we'll go into Jeremiah 27. Heavenly Father, we pray that right now as we dive into your word, that it will be your spirit that speaks to us. That it will be your spirit that convicts our hearts. And Father, we pray that our basis of your word would not be whether we like it or not, but whether it's true or not. And we pray that your spirit will move our hearts and transform our lives through your living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we're going to alternate our reading. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 7. I'll read the odd and you guys read the even verses. Here we go. Jeremiah 27, this is God's word. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah, the son of Josiah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Send word to the king of Adam, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth and with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, that many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Amen. Um, let me set the stage here. The stage is, this is around 597 BCE. What happened was that um, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, he actually conquered Jerusalem. And he made Zedekiah the new king of Jerusalem. But about three or four years into his reign, Zedekiah, along with some of the other kings from neighboring countries, decided to, they started to plan this rebellion against King Nebuchadnezzar. And fast forward towards the end of his reign, Zedekiah does, in fact, rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar, which is why Nebuchadnezzar comes back again and utterly destroys Jerusalem for the second time. So before that happens, though, God comes to Zedekiah and these kings, and he gives these words. God, uh, he sends Jeremiah to speak to them, 
And this is God's word. In verse 5, he says, it is I who made the earth. He says, I am sovereign. And it is up to me. I am fully in control. So I made it and I decide who gets power. He says, I am basically the sovereign one. And with that sovereignty, in verse 2, God says, God tells Jeremiah to put on a yoke bar. And if you don't know what that is, imagine a bar, wooden bar, and then it goes around your neck. And um, animals such as cows, were they wore it so that you would plow the field. It's not pleasant. It, it meant servitude. And so God said, I will use this yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, which symbolized the yoke of discipline and judgment, to discipline you. So he says, I am sovereign, sovereign, and because of that, I will discipline you. And the rest of Jeremiah from verse 8 to 22, it's kind of like a repeat. Verses 8 through 11, God speaks this message to Jeremiah. And then so from verses 12 to 15, Jeremiah goes to King Zedekiah and then says the message. And then he goes to the priests and the people of Judah and shares the same message in verses 16 and 22. And what was that message that came up again and again and again? It is this, in verse 12, Jeremiah speaks to Zedekiah, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and, and his people and live. God tells Zedekiah and Judah to bring their neck under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, to serve him. It was a political servitude. And again, it symbolized um, a yoke of discipline and judgment. God was going to use this event to not only judge, but to discipline his children who were up until now enslaved and yoked to sin and idol worship. History of Israel was that again and again and again, God sent prophets and told them to repent and to return, and yet they didn't listen. And so this event of exile, this yoke of Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the event that God uses to, yes, put them under political servitude, but through that actually free them from their addiction and from their enslavement, enslavement to sin. And so, what we see here is that when God disciplines us, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. In fact, it hurts. Let me give one example of how this works out. Because usually when we think about God disciplining us, it, it rarely is the fact that you hear a voice from like heaven to you directly saying, this is what you did wrong, like meme time from God. It's not like that. But rather, it comes through people, people in our lives. One of my friends who grew up as a Christian his whole life, he was smart, he was good-looking, he was nice, he was generous, on and on and on. But because of that, he actually um, didn't deal with some of his character flaws and sinful nature, such as being selfish and really loveless. He was kind, but he was not loving. By show of hands, who knows that, you know, loving others is kind of important in Christianity, yeah, right? It is. It is. And yet, he was loveless. And there was an event that happened when he was a junior or senior, I forget. And um, one of his leaders confronted him about it and corrected him because he loved my friend. And my friend came back to our apartment, and he looked really serious. I'm like, hey, what happened? And he said, you know, my, my leader, um, he corrected me about me being selfish and loveless. And he said, am I loveless? And we looked at him, me and my apartment mates, and said, uh, I don't know. We didn't want to admit it. And we say, hey, well, what happened, though? And he said, this is what he did. No, we went back and forth because I guess my leader was, I mean, my friend was being defensive about being selfish. So my leader or our leader took out a piece of paper and a pen, and he just went like this. And he said, look, 
do you see that? And he's like, see what? Do you see that dot on the paper? He's like, yeah, what about it? He said, that's literally the size of your heart for others. It's that small. And then my friend was so shocked, right? And then he came back to our apartment, and that's why he asked, am I loveless? And then that's when we actually, out of love, spoke truth to him. He said, look, you know, just, let's just go to your room. And because we had a room, apartment room, he shared it with another guy. We had five of us, and so three of us shared one room. Him and the other guy shared the other one. And if the room is split like this, he had two-thirds. He moved in early with this ginormous loft and with a ginormous desk. And so we literally, everyone else came into that room and said to the other guy, are you this guy's secretary? Because <laughs> this guy took up two-thirds of the room, right? He's like, am I selfish? And we're like, look at this room. What do you think, right? And then, but because of that, though, for him, that was a turning point. Because until then, no one actually disciplined him. Because everyone thought he was good. But when God disciplined him through his leader, truth came into his heart. And even though it hurt, it changed him. And now, literally, he's my age. If you gave him a piece of paper, or if you gave someone from his life a piece of paper, and you wrote down all the names of people that he ministered to, and people who felt loved by him, it will fill up the page and more. You see, his life was transformed because of that discipline. And for both the Israelites and for us and for my friend, there are times when God will discipline us because he is our father. And so what are some of those things? What are some of the things that God could discipline us about? It could be the following. These are all the things that I could relate to. And so I wrote them down. Maybe you could too. When you have an unrepentant sin in your life, I'm not talking about sin that you're struggling with, but a sin that you know is sin and you say you're not okay with it, but you actually are. And your actions show it because you're not doing anything about it. And so there's unrepentant sin, so God could come in and discipline you about that and say, that is not okay. Or maybe you have wronged someone. Maybe you sinned against someone. Or maybe you thought about it, and God says, that is not okay. Or maybe you have idols that your hearts are really attached to. A lot of us, I think this is the one that I relate to so much. We're not bad externally. If we go out into the society, not many of us, people will look at me like, that's a bad person. And yet, from a Christian point of view, when we look inside our hearts, we see that there are certain things, whether it be your ambition, certain people in our lives that our hearts are so attached to that when you try to pull your heart away from it, it feels like your life is being torn apart. It is an idol that your heart is literally super glued onto. And God says, I need your heart to be attached to me. And then God pulls that and you go, ah, oh, God, stop, it hurts. Why are you hurting me? And God says, because you're super glued onto this idol. You can't let it go. That is your God. So many Christians walk around with idols in our hearts. Or it could be about disobedience to the calling. You know you should do something. But we're not doing that. Trusting in ourselves. Anyone want to do that? I do that a lot. Trusting in ourselves and not in God. Or lukewarm, complacent, indifferent attitude. Or like my friend, lovelessness and other character flaws. I want to ask you, if God came in physical form today, and then, um, can I just pick on you, Daniel? And then God said, hey, Daniel, finally, I got your attention. Let's go grab boba together this week. If God actually came like that, your heart would be like, this pounding, right? Oh my goodness. But let's say God sat down with you over boba or coffee and said, Daniel, you know I love you because I'm your heavenly father. And you go, yeah. 
And so God said, because I love you and I want you to grow to be the man that I have purposed you to be, I'm going to speak some truth to you. At that moment, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, what, what, is, that, what is God going to say, right? And then if God were to say, you know what, I know you love me, but these are the things that you need to work on. If, and then you were to fill that out or finish that sentence, what would God say to you? Maybe for some of us, it is the idols, the things that we're not letting go. For some of us, it's our attitude that's lukewarm and so indifferent to the gospel. Maybe for some of us, we are really loveless. Or for some of us, there is that hidden sin that no one knows about, but we love it so much that we're not letting go. And with those, again, out of love, God will discipline us. God will say, we need to work on that. I will chisel that from your life. And for us, when it's not pleasant, I don't know if you, ever done, if you have ever done this, whenever there's something unpleasant or that hurts you but is true, there's two ways we could respond. One way is we could reject it. The other way is we could accept and submit to it. So we could either reject God's discipline or submit to God's discipline. And so how do we reject God's discipline? I think one of the ways that we reject God's discipline is this. We reject God's discipline by listening to lies. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't listen to lies. Yeah, don't listen to lies. Guys, when I think about lies, um, nowadays all my analogies about food because I'm always hungry. And um, when I think about lies, it's like sweet. It's sweets in your mouth when you eat it. It tastes so good, but it's not good for you. And that's what actually happened to the people of Judah in Jeremiah 27. What happened was Jeremiah was speaking truth again and again and again, but there were these other false prophets who were lying to them about God. In verses 14 and 15, it says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. They were lying that they will not serve Nebuchadnezzar. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. They were lying to people about God. And notice this. Notice how these prophets didn't say, didn't tell the people, hey, you should just deny God. And what I find really interesting with the Israelites is that they, imagine this, if you're the Israelite, an Israelite, you've been hearing God's going to drive you out, and you don't like that. But instead of saying, you know what, if that's who my God is, forget him, I, I'm not going to believe him anymore. I deny him, I reject him, you know what, forget him, I'm going to believe in this other God. They never do that. No matter how many rebukes and corrections they hear, they never actually fully push God away. Instead, what they do is they listen to these lies from other false prophets who say, no, 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 that's not who God is. That's not what God said. What God said is who God is is this. He's not going to drive you out. He's not going to discipline you. He's not like that. And then people listened to the false prophets and continued in sin. And before we criticize them, I think we got to see that we also do that too. Guys, most of us do not respond to God's discipline by rejecting God, but by actually recreating God. We make our own versions of God. I want to ask you, what God are you worshiping today? I know we're all in the same church, but when you think about who God is, 
Is that the God of the Bible, the true God, the living God? Or is it some other version of God that you made up? You know, we don't like it when our pride gets hurt. We don't like it when we need to give up the things that we like. We don't like it when people say no or people say, you got to live this way. We don't like certain teachings in the Bible. So what do we do? Instead of rejecting God and saying, you know what, I'm just going to leave faith, leave church and believe in a different God. We stay in church, but we go, you know what, maybe that's too much. Maybe that preacher is too much. Maybe that's not true about God. And instead of turning to the Bible and studying it and going, is this really who God is? We just go, hmm, that one I don't like. So I'm going to go this place who says something a little bit different. That message about judgment, that message about repentance, I don't like it. You know, I'm going to go here where it's all about God loves you. God wants what's best for you. God will give you the strength to do what you desire to do. I like that. I'm the judge of what's true, so I'm going to go here. The Bible says people will listen to false prophets who will speak what they want to hear, what their itching ears want to hear. We make our own version of God who would leave us alone to let us do basically what we want to do. So that we could live this life where every Sunday we come to church and we sit and we listen. And then when anyone says, what do you believe in? We say, I'm a Christian. But we go through our week, really, not as followers of Jesus, you know, with unrepentant sin or with idols or with things, you know, that are just so of this world. And there's not a drop of Jesus in our life throughout the week, and yet there's zero conviction about that. And whenever anyone tries to correct or discipline you about it, you go, whoa, whoa, slow down there. Why are you judging me? Why are you condemning me? And then we take up that card so that no one could actually tell us that we're, we need to repent. And when we do that, what happens is this. What happens is that we continue to live in sin, and we become lukewarm Christians who are never convicted. You know, one of the, I think, mainstream versions of God, think about this. What are some gods that we serve in our American church, uh, church in America, right? I mean, yes, it is the God of the Bible, but really, what are some of the some versions of God that we serve? I think one of them that's coming up a lot nowadays, and which is really abusing this idea of grace, is this God of what I call chill pill. Imagine this. Imagine God who's sitting on a couch, or Jesus sitting on the couch, and he looks at this world, and there's all this sin, and people need to turn to God, and he goes, you know what? Ah, forget it. I'm just going to take this chill pill, right? I feel so chill now. Just turn on a movie, eat some popcorn, and nothing bothers him anymore. He looks at this broken world. He looks at all the sin. He looks at all the pain and hurt, and nothing bothers him anymore because it's chill. Nothing upsets him anymore. And while that sounds crazy, isn't that what a lot of us, a lot of churches believe in nowadays? Where we don't want God who gets offended. We don't want God who doesn't want us to live a sinful life. We don't want God who actually comes and says, that is sin. We don't want that kind of God. You know, we imagine this God who, where his children are just indulging in sin throughout the week, but it's fine. We imagine this God where his children are living the most selfish life where there is not a single difference between them and the people of this world. In fact, more selfish, more greedy, more about me, me, me than people of this world. God looks at that and goes, you know what? It's fine. Grace. 
We imagine this God where his children are so far from the gospel. But God looks at them and goes, oh yeah, one day you'll come back, it's fine. His children who are stumbling others with their hypocrisy. And God says, you know what, it's fine. His children who are being yoked by Satan, and Satan is dragging them along, going, come this way, come this way, follow this of this world. Don't even think about God throughout the week. There's not a single thought about Jesus being dragged along according to the world by Satan every single day. God looks at that and goes, that's fine. God of chill pill. Our God is so chill, huh? He's so gracious. Guys, this is a hard message, but we need to remember the gospel does not say our God is chill. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is patient. Yes, he is forgiving. Yes, he is gracious, but he is not chill. He is zealous. He is passionate. And in his zeal and passion, what did he do? When he saw that brokenness, when he saw his children indulging in sin, when he saw how Satan has yoked and is dragging us around, he sent his son Jesus to die a gruesome death on the cross because he looked at that and he said, that is not okay. That is not the life that I've called you to live. That is not my purpose for you. And because it is so not okay, I will send Jesus my son so that you'll be free from that, so that you will be set apart, so that you will live a life where people will look at it and say, there is Jesus' love. Our God loves us too much to let us go down a path of destruction. The gospel says our God is serious. He is loving. He is patient. You see, the danger of recreating our own God with lies is this. For remember, for the people of Judah, they didn't deny God. They just had this other false version of God, according to false prophets. And when we do that, one of the dangers is, one, we will slowly but surely drift away from God and spiritually die out. I don't know if you've ever done this. Until I met Kanye, I did this a lot. Um, Kanye's the one that I'm married to. Um, I'm married to. Um, when I was younger, I would just kind of like fantasize and daydream about certain girls that I knew. And then, I don't, does anyone do that? All right, thank you, thank you. Some of the older ones who are more secure, yeah, we do that. And then, so you, you're too shy to talk to her or him, and you're too shy to actually go up and get to know them. So you start like looking at their social media or kind of see how they interact, and then you start putting all these attributes to them. She is kind, she's funny, she's smart, she's this and that, right? And then so you have this image of who she is, or you have this image of who he is, right? And then you go and then you actually get to know them, and then your fantasy just shatters. And you go, whoa, who are you, right? Um, I, I know that happened to me before, and it's kind of like that where if we don't really know who God is, we have this false version of who God is. God is this, God is that, and God is da-da-da-da-da. But if that is really not who God is, and this is who God is, the more we get closer to this false version of God, the farther we actually drift away from Him. And when that happens, because we're not connected to the source of our life, we will slowly die out. But not only that, um, we would, number two, we will be bad at listening to God and be really good at listening to Satan. In John 8, Satan is described as the father of lies. Um, say, Satan's a liar. I turn to the person next to you and then just share real quick, what is one lie that Satan has whispered into your ears? Share that with the person next to you. Go. 
All right. Um, do we all agree that Satan's a liar? Yeah. If you look at Genesis, that's how he came and he deceived Adam and Eve. That's one of his ways to get people. And so he's a liar. And what happens is he would even send false prophets to lie to us. And Satan's strategy is not to make you disown God, but rather to make you create a false version of God so that you don't believe in a real biblical God, but some other God that's not God at all. He's smart. He twists just enough where you think that you're believing in the biblical God when you're really believing in God of blank, whatever that is for you. And so we have to be, we have to be mindful. That's why we got to read the Bible and know the scripture. But the biggest danger, I think, is this. We will be a lukewarm church that worships a false God. If we're not connected to the true living God, we're going to spiritually die out and we're going to become lukewarm. There's going to be no um, genuine gospel. And when there is no genuine gospel, that church will not be hot nor passionate. It will just be lukewarm. And eventually what that means is you're going to have a church that is loveless, powerless, and Christless. And that is the danger of creating our own God because that is not God at all. So the big question is this. These are all the bad things. And um, I, I, I wrote them again. When, by the way, whenever I do these, how do I come up with these lists? These are the things that I basically fell into. Okay? So these are personal experiences. Um, so how do you avoid this pitfall? This is what we need. We need Jeremiah's in our lives. So turn to the person next to you and be, say, be my Jeremiah. Yes, we need people who are, who are going to speak truth to us. I want to ask you, not just spiritually, I think one way we could assess this is this. In your life right now, not even spiritually, but just in general, who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you surrounding yourself with people who care about you so much that they would risk that relationship to speak truth to you when it matters? Or are you surrounding yourself with people who would just tell you what you want to hear? And if it's a ladder, it's dangerous. And now if we apply that to our Christian faith and life, it's even more dangerous. We need people who are willing to speak truth to us. And not only that, we have to give him permission to speak truth to us. One of the reasons why in the example that I gave, my friend went from this selfish dude to this most, one of the most loving guys that I know is because he listened to God's discipline. He allowed his leader to speak truth into his life. So I want to ask you, do you have people in your life who are willing to speak truth to you? And if they are there, I'm asking you a second question. Have you given them permission to speak truth to you? Of course, gently and in love, right? Gently and in love. But did you give them permission? Because maybe if you didn't, if you didn't, the God that you have in your head, the voice that you're hearing, you got to watch out for that. And so the beauty of this is this. In, in the context of community of God where we are surrounded with Jeremiah's and where we are being a Jeremiah to one another, where there's truth spoken in love and gentleness, what's going to happen then is this. If so, we're going to respond to God's discipline differently. We're going to respond by submitting to it as we trust in Him. 
We already know and established that God disciplines out of love. But now we could trust in Him because we have people in our lives who are affirming that, confirming that and saying, yes, God loves you and that's why this truth has to be in your life. And we could trust in God's word. If we read Jeremiah 27 carefully, we see that God's purpose of judgment and discipline is not only to destroy, but to destroy in order to build up correctly. It's kind of like this. If you ever broke a bone and it didn't heal correctly, what do you need to do? You need to break it again and align it correctly so that it would heal properly. It causes pain, but it helps you be stronger at the end. Or if you have a house where the foundation is not good and you started building and you clearly know that the foundation is bad, you have to break down the house and redo the foundation so that the house will stand firmly after that. And so when God brings discipline and when it seems like God is destroying our lives, it is not to destroy us out of hatred, but rather it is to build us up again out of love. And we see that in Jeremiah 27, verses 21 and 22. This is how the chapter ends. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. The beauty of these verses is that, yes, it is talking about the physical vessels that are going to be taken out from the temple of God in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, and they will come back. But it also represents the people of Judah and us. Just as the physical temple vessels were corrupted and became useless in the service unto God, and they will go to Babylon and come back and be restored so that they could be used by God. People of Judah became corrupt and useless unto service unto God, and they will be taken to Babylon, be disciplined, be restored, and come back to be used by God. When God disciplines us out of love, it is so that he could restore us to be his people, to be his holy nation. As I invite the praise team to come up, I want to end with um, just the personal sharing and testimony of God's discipline. Personally, the Isaac in me hates discipline because I'm really proud. But the Isaac who died in Christ is thankful for the discipline of God. I shared earlier that in my 20s, one of the themes is sovereignty of God. And I'm truly thankful that God comforted me through all the times when I was down. But I'm also thankful that God's strong hand disciplined me. And one of them was actually this. My biggest addiction that I struggled with in my 20s was ministry. I started ministry in my early 20s, and I loved it. I remember until then when I was working in the corporations and business, I, I just remember, like, I would walk to the, every time I walked to the bathroom, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I really don't care about these numbers. Yeah, the company's making money, but I don't care. I really don't, why, what's the point of this? So when I started ministry, I felt passion. It felt so right. And I fell in love with ministry. And I fell in love with the fact that I could do journey with people in their faith. But the problem was, I loved it so much that it became toxic. It became the source of my self-worth. And I had this constant guilt where if I spent even 30 minutes in one day on something non-related to ministry, 
if I slept more than a certain number of hours, usually five, six hours in one day, I felt like I was sinning. If I spent 15 minutes on YouTube, five minutes on Facebook, I felt like I was sinning. If I talked to someone and it was not related to ministry, I felt like I was sinning. Why? Because I thought I could be using this time to talk to one more person, to study the Bible more, to pray a little bit more, to do more ministry. It became my addiction. And even if I was physically present with my family, I was emotionally and mentally gone. All I could think about was ministry. And even if, I, if, if my family needed me, and one of my um, students would text or call me, not even emergency, that's priority always. Right? And eventually when ministry became hard and I experienced failures, I struggled with, some of you know from my mental health seminar, with depression too. On the surface, I looked like a sacrificial pastor who loves Jesus. And that, yeah, I love Jesus. Everything seemed fine, but I was dying inside. And when God saw that, because he is sovereign, he didn't just say, Isaac, it's going to be okay. Hang in there. No, he said, Isaac, I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to pull you out. And I said, God, no, let me be here. I, I got to be here with these people. And God, just with his strong hand of discipline, and said, I'm going to pull you out. Just be right here. And when my biggest source of self-worth and identity was stripped off from me, I felt so naked and vulnerable. I didn't know what to do. And for the next three months after I stepped down, I hit the lowest point in my life. And I realized how big of an idol ministry was. And every week I would say, God, okay, I'm done. I'm recharged. Let me go back to ministry. And God said, no. And I would argue with God. I'm like, God, don't you know I love you and I love people? Don't you want my help? And God said, Isaac, don't you want my help? You're not a, just a worker bee to me that I want, I want to work until you're dead. You're my child, and I want you to know that. And when I look back to that past year, it was hard. It was hard in many senses, financially, spiritually, emotionally. In every sense, it was hard. It was painful. But I'm thankful. Why? Because I know that God's sovereign hand decided to discipline me because there were things that were being built up in my heart that was not good. So he destroyed all that so that he could rebuild me first as a child of God, where the gospel is the foundation again. And so if you're going through that right now, or if you are scared of God's discipline, my challenge and my encouragement to you is God loves you. And when God disciplines you, yes, it will hurt. But instead of rejecting that by listening to lies and making false versions of God, let's submit to our loving God. We could trust in Him because He will build you up to be the man and woman that He has purposed you to be. Let's pray. As we um, spend some time to pray, let's pray for a couple things. One, let's pray that we will be humble and open to God's discipline. And number two, let's pray that we will be a community of Jeremiah's who will speak truth to one another in love and gentleness. So let's pray for our own hearts that we will be open to God's discipline. And let's pray for Christ first, our community, that we will be truth speakers in love. Let's pray.